Whenever anyone is called to testify, to on the stand speak the truth, oftentimes in our culture, in our society, they say the words, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me who? So help me God. When we continue our study here in the Gospel of John chapter 8, we are going to see Jesus speak truth. And not just an abstract intellectual truth, not just an empty religious truth. No, this is a personal truth that liberates persons. This is a powerful truth that frees all who hear it, receive it, and believe it. It is a liberating truth. So before we dive into not only Jesus teaching on truth, but then also the truth about the father of lies... Let me share this story with you about a young Muslim man. Perhaps you've heard me share it before, but I think it's so wonderful and pertinent for today's study. I wanted to share it again. The young man's name is Richard Elu, and the book is called Reverberation. Richard Elu tells his story about how someone shared the Bible with him, shared the gospel with him, and how the Lord captured his heart through his word but in a way that you would have never guessed. Richard Alou, quote, had no interest in actually reading the Bible. He was a Muslim after all, and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in the country of Nigeria. Still, he did figure out one way to put the Bible that a Christian friend had given him to good use. Richard would tear out the pages and he would use the pages to roll cigarettes and to roll marijuana joints. He said, papers for rolling our own cigarettes were expensive. So we would tear out pages from the Bible and use them as our rolling papers for our drugs. On one occasion in 1978, Richard tore a page from the Bible for rolling a joint, but ended up stuffing it into his pocket. That night, Bored and unable to sleep, he pulled the page, the Bible page, from his pocket, the Bible page that he was going to use to taste marijuana, and it was from Psalm 34, 8. You ready for this? Oh, taste and see. (laughs) Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. For the next three weeks, Richard Alou could not get this verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who had shared the gospel and given him the Bible. That young man told him how he could know Christ. And one night, the story goes, alone in his room, Richard prayed, Lord God, I want to taste you, like this verse says. And that same evening, Richard, the Muslim who used the pages of Scripture to smoke pot, came to believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. The word of God, the words of Jesus had freed him, liberated him. And that is what is so helpful as a reminder of God's truth, that God's truth is true. God's truth liberates But God's truth should also be something that we as Christians delight in. Like a delicious meal, 
like our favorite restaurant, like something where we come to and we want to enjoy every single morsel, not only because it tastes good, not only because it frees us from deception and bondage, but because we remember who the author is, right? We remember not only that we have a good father who has spoken out these truths, and it's a collection of different things. It's laws, it's prophecy, it's history, it's a story. But we also have an enemy of our souls that would want nothing else but to think that what he has spoken, the one who is good and the one who is true, hasn't actually spoken what is true. Jesus describes him as a father. Jesus describes Satan as the father of lies. So let truth in our churches, in our home, in our marriages, let this truth, this personal truth, be something we delight in. And how do we know it's personal? Not only because it frees, it frees us personally, but because it points to a person. When do we understand the beauty of God's word? When we truly know the beauty of his son. It's when we receive the word of God in Christ that all of a sudden this book transforms. It transforms the word of God in scripture to a delight. It transforms. Now, many of us, we grew up probably with a Bible in the house. And maybe some of us, it was like a family heirloom. Or perhaps it was a piece of furniture. And it had all kinds of candles and pictures by it. Okay, Not necessarily disrespecting how people treat the Bible. But oftentimes, in many of our houses, it is treated as a piece of furniture. And not as a love letter. Not as a guide. Not as truth to be taken in and enjoyed, and delighted in. We should be a people that love truth. Blaise Pascal put it like this, the famous French mathematician. He said, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Jesus wants us to be a people that love the truth because we love him. How did Jesus describe himself? He is the way. He is the life, and he is what? Truth. Tim Challies put it like this. One author put it like this. Truth is what God thinks. Truth is what God does. Truth is what God is. It is what God has revealed of himself in the Bible. Truth is found in its fullest form in God, for he is the truth. He is the very source and origin of all Truth. Amen? Here's the thing about truth. Here's that pesky, gnawing reality about truth. Ready? Truth is true whether you think it's true or not. Truth is true whether you like it or not. Now, we all know this. We just don't recognize it when it comes to matters of religion, quote-unquote. Matters of theology, matters of faith and God and creation and worship, because, of course, truth matters to us. For example, if someone was walking along the street with you and then all of a sudden punched you in the face, took your wallet, would you stand up and say, sir, I recognize your truth. That's your truth that you wanted to steal me and beat me. May you have a wonderful day. Would that be our reaction? Come on, parents, talk to me. If someone wanted to harm and hurt your children, would you say, oh, well, that's your truth, and I want to affirm that truth, and yes, you can harm my family. Thank you very much. No. Why? 
Because the truth is, that is wrong, it's evil, and it should be pushed back against, right? But whatever reason, when it comes to Scripture, we do think that truth becomes relative. We do think that every single human being is the arbiter of truth, the arbiter of what's false. We all get to determine everything about eternity, about faith, about God. We become gods because we refuse to see truth in God. So here it is. We come to this passage. And the irony here is that Jesus is speaking about how truth frees people to people who have been freed by this truth, meaning that he's speaking first to the Jews that believed. So he's speaking to believers. He's saying, if you abide, I love that word, abide. If you abide in the truth, the truth will set you free. But you know who else was listening? The Pharisees. And they are going to take such offense to this. Pharisees always get offended, by the way, right? They take such offense to this because what is Jesus saying? He is saying to the people who believe themselves to be the arbiters of truth, the defenders of truth, those who know God and are the ones who bring truth, Jesus says, you are enslaved to your sin and you are not speakers of the truth. So they're offended by this. The story picks up here in verse 33. If you have your Bibles open, let's take a look. They, the scribes, the religious establishment, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you, you say, Jesus, you will become free? And then Jesus answered them in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And what does slavery mean, church? That means when your master speaks, you have no choice and no option but to obey. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. This is the, coming from the one who never did sin. The only true free human being to ever walk planet earth, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is saying, if you sin, it's a sign that you are not only a sinner by choice, you're a sinner by nature, and there's something deeper in you that's enslaved to that sin, and that's why no one who's ever walked planet earth has lived a perfect life besides Christ. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, why can't I stop doing bad things? Like, why, why don't we wake up, like, after decades of going through the same circles and the merry-go-round and the roller coaster, wake up and be like, what? Why can't I just, like, stop it? Why can't I just stop sinning? Well, because there's something deeper. We are not as free as we think. So you have here the Pharisees, and they are saying, well, we're sons of Abraham. And today, where we live in the land of the free, in the home of the brave, and thank God for the liberties that we have, you can be an American, even as they were saying, they're a son of Abraham, and still not be free. Literally, you could live in the freest society the world has ever known. You could not be behind prison bars and yet be in a prison cell of your own design. Jesus is one who wants to free slaves. He wants to deliver them from bondage. So the hard part is oftentimes we're blinded to our slavery. These Pharisees are saying, well, we are free. But they would admit readily that they are currently living under the boot of Caesar and the tyranny of Rome. So they're not free politically. 
They're not even free morally. Jesus would say that they're hypocrites. They would say they don't do what they teach. In fact, they heap on burdens on other people and they are like whitewashed tombs. Man, they look good on the outside, but on the inside, filled with dead man's bones. They're not free politically. They're not free morally. They're not even free theologically. Why? Because God's word's not enough for them. They keep adding to it, saying, well, people won't get that, so let's add a little of this. People won't like that, so let's add a little of this. People, you know, we need, to, we need to create a fence around the law. They're not free theologically, and they're not free emotionally. What do I mean by that? They want to kill Jesus Christ. They are not only simmering, they are seething with anger towards this perfect man. They want him crucified. They want him dead. On every single sense, they're not free, and yet they are deceived to think they are. So what does it mean for us to know that truth exists, deception exists, and the path to freedom is to know the difference? To know the difference. Because what you're about to hear are your two options. Not only the two options for the Jews that believed, not only the two options for the Pharisees that were offended, but the two options for all of us right now. Every single person, doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter the season of life you're in, it doesn't matter whether you think this applies to you or not. If there's truth, it's true whether you like it or not. So Jesus is about to say something that will enrage the Pharisees. But he's also saying something that if we're paying attention right now, should wake us up to the very, very polar opposites and very, very clear options that every single human being has. He says here, the Bible says in chapter 8, verse 43, jumping down now to this later part of our study. Why do you not understand what I say, Jesus asks? It is because you cannot, what does it say? Bear to hear my word. They're hearing his word. They just can't bear to hear it. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Boom. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When Jesus speaks, it's always true. And what he's giving us is the truth about the one who never speaks truth. When Jesus speaks, he always speaks truth. And now he's warning us about the one who never speaks truth. And how does he describe Satan? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever pondered this? Jesus describes Satan as a father. Fascinating. What does that mean? Does that mean he literally reproduces demons or he reproduces himself? Not necessarily. It just means when people are deceived by his lies, then they reproduce his lies. He is in the same way a father that has many children. He, when his lies find their root and enslave people, they multiply. He's the father of lies. And is this father a good father? No, because not only he's a liar, but because he's a murderer. And we should remember this. The Bible describes him in a multitude of different ways. For example, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, Satan is named in Isaiah 14, 12, Lucifer, and he's called 
the son of the morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 and 15 says, Satan transforms himself into the likeness of an angel. Now that's deception. How many religions outside of Christian truth were started by the revelation of an angel? When we hear truths like that, we're reminded that Satan doesn't reveal himself to us as Satan, right? Satan doesn't send you a postcard. He doesn't ask for an email RSVP. He doesn't say, okay, Thursday is going to be a rough day. You're going to get into a fight with your wife. And when you are most susceptible to temptation, I'm going to come knock on your door, and I'm going to come tempt you, and I'm going to come lead you down a dark path. Is that how he does it? Does he show up as a cartoon character with a top hat and a pitchfork and a long tail? No. Sometimes he deceives himself or he clothes himself as an angel of light. So that's why we have to be discerning about his deception. 2 Corinthians 4.4 describes him as the lowercase g, God of this world, who blinds men's minds. If you're taking notes, now's a good time. John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus describes Satan as the prince of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 describes him as the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 describes Satan as the deceiver of the world. Matthew 4, verse 3 describes Satan as a tempter. Matthew 6, verse 13 describes him as the evil one. Matthew 12, 24 describes him as the prince of devils. In fact, Ephesians 6, 12, Satan is called the ruler of the darkness of this world. What do you hear over and over again? Not only deception, but power. Now, of course, when Christians call upon the name of Christ, we are not asking Christ to just win our battles for us, but we are already claiming that Jesus has won the war. You've heard me say it before. Christians, we don't just pray for victory. We pray from victory. Yeah, we might lose momentary battles in our sanctification, in our Christian journey and growth, but Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, he has crushed the head of that serpent. The victory is ours. So the only way that the enemy has any victory in your life is if you believe his lies. Now, of course, if you don't believe in Christ, if you haven't been saved and filled by his spirit, the Bible says, just like these men had a father and it wasn't your heavenly father, we can be following the prince of this world, the darkness of this world, the lowercase g, God of this world, even as we think we're just following ourselves. And is that not one of Satan's most effective lies? That you think you are autonomous, you think you are free, you think you're not following anything or anyone. I don't need a family. I don't need a wife. I don't need Bible or church. I don't need Jesus because I'm following me. And what does Jesus actually say? No, you're not. You're actually following the father of lies. Stark, shocking, comforting because it's true. We need to hear this. God the father is the father of life. Satan is the father of lies. God blesses and Satan curses. God creates. And what does Satan do? What's the only thing Satan can do? God creates and Satan counterfeits. 
God liberates and Satan enslaves. Thomas Brooks once put it like this, Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But God, as he promises, all his payments are made in pure gold. That doesn't necessarily mean the gold that you wear around your wrist or around your neck. But that means every single gift from our good father, as James says, comes from his hand. It is a beautiful gift, a resplendent gift, and it should be seen as pure gold. Thomas Adams, describing the way that Satan works, he said this, Satan is not just like a serpent, not just like a roaring lion, as 1 Peter describes, not just like a dragon, as the book of Revelation describes. Satan is also like a fisherman. He's a fisherman who baits his cook according to the appetite of the fish. What does that mean? Well, that means to a certain degree that when the fish see the bait, they aren't thinking of the hook. Because if they knew there was a hook in the bait, would the fish go eat it? Now, we're talking about fish, right? Now, the truth is, I think there's some ways that the enemy baits a cultural hook, right? So there's a certain sense that a lot of us, we nibble upon that hook or we full-on bite that hook and it affects all of us. And we could talk about that. But what I also think is true about what Thomas Adams said is that he intentionally and specifically knows how to bait each of our hooks. He knows the intersection of our desires. He knows the lengths of our stubbornness and our hubris. And he says, if I dangle this in front of them, man, they're going to bite. And they're going to be my catch today. So the question is, friends, What is he baiting your hook with, right? What is he baiting the hook for you, for your marriage, for your family, for your careers, for this church? How is he specifically trying to lead you astray and deceive you? And that's why it's very, very interesting that not only Jesus said he is the father of lies, but Jesus also said he was a murderer from the beginning. And what does that mean? Have we ever thought about this? Have we ever slowed down to think? Well, who has Satan literally murdered? Murderer at the beginning? Well, he's probably talking about Genesis, right? Creation, Adam and Eve. You remember the story in Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything good, and then it culminates with Adam and Eve, mankind, those he made in his image, and he says it's very good. He blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and fill it. He gives Eve to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. There is a wedding, and Adam breaks forth in the song, and he sings, Woman, the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. He is grateful to his father, and he starts singing. It's true. It's in your Bible. By the way, that's why I like girls like guys that can sing. Um, And then, (laughs) welcome back. Hi, everybody. Genesis 2 is a wedding. Genesis 3 is a war. That serpent waits till Adam is married to Eve, and then he attacks. What God has brought together, he wants to divide and to separate. And what does he do? He murders, not literally in a physical sense, but he deceives our first parents. 
And that's why you always hear me say, what we see in the Garden of Eden is what replays itself out in the Garden State every single day. He's the murderer from the beginning. How many of us have ever played the game Clue? The game Clue? Remember Clue, right? Professor Plum in the ballroom with the candlestick. What is Satan's murder weapon of choice? It's not just deception, but it is to doubt God's good nature, to doubt God's good character. You could literally study what the enemy says in Genesis chapter 3 and then apply it to all the deceptions in our world today, then all of it's going to make sense. What's the first thing that that slithering, lying serpent says to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say? That's it. Has God spoken? If he has, then he's God, right? When we get to make our own universe, when you create an entire cosmos, two trillion galaxies just by speaking, then maybe your word can stand up against God's word. But we know that's not the case. No, it wasn't enough for Adam and Eve just to be made in the image of God. They wanted to be God, and Satan knew that, and he knew how to bait the hook. Let me not only deceive them into thinking God has not spoken, but in deceiving them about what God has said, what is he really doing? He is calling God a liar. The father of lies is saying their father, who has blessed them, is a liar. He can't be trusted. His words can't be trusted. And by the way, this is not just the world. There are churches and seminaries and theologians when these cultural issues come knocking at our door. And everyone is saying, well, this, this is totally fine. This is good. And Bible says God loves everybody, but no, that's not good. There will be teachers. There will be churches. There will be seminaries that say, well, did God really say? Now, sometimes flat out, they will say, yes, it says it in the Bible, but we don't recognize that even as a theologian or a tradition or as a church as the truth. If that ever happens here, can I give you a little encouragement? Either fire me or get out. Because in the end, as a shepherd of the good shepherd, all we're called to do is to not edit God's word, but to share God's word. The Bible has plenty of editors. It has very few messengers. So what happens? The enemy says, did God really say? And then he says they can be like God, not enough to be made in the image of God. And then lastly, this is the big one. He says, surely you will not die, which is a false claim. They are going to partake of the knowledge of good and evil. Will they die in that moment? Will the murderer succeed in his murder attempt? In that moment, they don't die. But those who were made to live forever, one day they do. So they, in that moment, experience spiritual death. And that spiritual death, much later, will lead to physical death. That's the same reality now. So what happens is they partake of something that was not meant for them to partake of. Because they're made in the image of God, they wanted to be God, so they wanted the knowledge of good and evil. Was it just the fruit that was appealing to them? Did, it wasn't just like, man, that fruit looks so good. Or was it how Satan baited the hook? What the fruit promised. Oh, yeah. 
There shouldn't be any limits to me. I don't want anybody telling me what I can do and where I can go. It wasn't just the fruit. They had plenty of fruit. So they wanted to be God. They partook. The enemy lied. They said there would not be consequences, and there was. This happens all the time, every single week. Even last night I had a conversation with a family member. Well, people often say, how could a good God send anyone to hell, right? Have you ever noticed that no one ever asks, how could a good God send anyone to heaven? Like, I'm still waiting for that question. I could be a pastor for 100 years, and nobody's going to come to me and say, how could a good God, how could a just God send anyone to heaven? You see, that's the ethos of our culture. Satan said it right back at the beginning. Surely you will not die. This is the same story replaying itself over and over and over again. So what happened? Very interesting truth. Genesis 3-7 says this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What happened was, ironically, as they died a spiritual death on the inside, their eyes were open. Have you ever thought about that? Because the Bible talks about blindness, spiritual blindness all the time. How is it that their eyes were open? What were their eyes open to, my friends? Their eyes were open to their shame. And this is when, this is the exact moment, the exact intersection, and the only hope that we have. Because their eyes were open to their shame, but their eyes weren't open to their Savior. All of a sudden, even though their eyes were open to evil and to their shame, they didn't run to God. What did Adam do? Adam literally tried to hide from God, the God that created everything. And God calls out to him and says, Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Was he looking for information? Was God in need of a Google Maps app to help him find Adam? No. He wanted to pull Adam out. There is no hiding from him. And then he asked him some very simple questions. What happened was the same wife that Adam was praising God for in Genesis 2, now that wife, God, Adam is blaming God for. It was this woman that you gave me, God, that led me to do this. He doesn't own his sin. He doesn't own his responsibility. Even though his eyes are open to his shame, his spiritual darkened heart is blind to his own sin. He's become a slave. A slave to sin, so much so that he starts to blame others and not himself. And not only that, but then he takes fig leaves. And we don't know where he got the leaves from. But my goodness, what if he got it from the same tree that led to his sin? The tree was good. The tree just wasn't meant for us. So what if he ties together these fig leaves? What he's trying to do is he's trying to use a man-made way to cover his sin. Does that play itself out today? Is that playing itself out in our churches Is that playing itself out everywhere? What's the fig leaf for you? Where we're trying to hide and pretend, and I mean, that's what being uh, hypocritical means, right? Hypocrisis, we're wearing a mask. What fig leaves are we wearing? Because in the end, some of us are good. We're really good at sewing together fig leaves. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you look at some of us and you're like, wow, that person has really got it together. 
that person's really strong and successful and has the perfect life and everything's going right for that person. Meaning that that person's really good at sewing together fig leaves. Can I give you a little insight into that person? He or she is a jacked up sinner just like you. Some of us, we're not very good at sewing together fig leaves at all. We can barely keep the fig leaf on. We're just a white hot mess and we can't help but everybody know about it. The truth is we're all equal at the foot of the cross. The same tree where we partook of something that wasn't meant for us. Our hope is also in a tree where Jesus took the price of our sin, the penalty that was meant for us, and he substituted himself. He crushed the head of that serpent. Whereas Adam stood silently by as the serpent deceived his wife, our Jesus shows up and says, the truth will set you What's the truth? The truth is that there is a Savior, and it's not me, and it's not you. There's a truth. The truth is there is a God, and it's not me, and it's not you. The truth is that we all deserve hell. Satan will say right now, right now, and you can tell how much we've been affected by the culture. Right now, we'll be like, I don't deserve that. I'm a good guy. And I'm sure there's someone that you could compare yourself to where you're going to feel really good about yourself. Have you ever noticed that? There's always someone worse than you. You can compare yourself and feel really, really better about yourself. Here's what the Bible says. No, compare yourself to God. Compare yourself to his law and his word and his son. Oh, and then we see our need for a savior. When we try to cover ourselves in fig leaves, the fig leaves fail us. You know who never will? the one who died on the tree for you, the one who rose again victorious, so in his death, we can have life. So when his spirit fills us, we can know freedom. Would you turn from the father of lies? Would you return to the father who loves you? Would you believe in the liberator of sinners? Because when we do, all of a sudden, how do freed slaves act? Freed slaves don't come into church like this. Saying, oh gosh, I got to do this again. Oh man, that pastor's going to get on my nerves again. Oh man, the wife's dragging me here again. Oh man, I got to listen to this again. There's dry times in everyone's spiritual journey, but that's not what I'm talking about. Friends, how do free slaves act? They want to know the one who saved them and shout it from the rooftops. Amen? When's the last time we came back to not only our Father who loves us, not only the Jesus who speaks truth, but also the one who has liberated us, and we give him our hearts, our lives, our futures, and our forevers. Let's pray and do that now, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, as Jesus said, as Jesus prayed. We thank you for your son who said of himself that he is not only the way, he is not only the life, but he is the truth. So God, we thank you for your word, which doesn't return void. We thank you for your risen, reigning son who will always win. But now we need your spirit. Good father, would you send your spirit to deliver us from the father of lies and grant us life? Would you grant us light so we could see the path to life? Holy Spirit, would you help us wrestle not with my words because I'm just 
a messed up sinner like the rest of us. Would you help us to hear and to wrestle and to believe and to receive with your words and the words of your son, our slave-freeing, conquering king. Friends, if that's you this morning, if you know you've been allowing the words of the world and the lies of that serpent to affect the way you live and the way you think for too long, then I'm going to invite you to pray right now. Let this prayer be a prayer of repentance, of returning, turning from yourself and from your sin and from Satan and from the world and returning back to a God who loves you and a Savior who bled and died for you. Would you receive this gift of freedom? But in the end, many walk away because in walking away, we reveal that the father of lies is still speaking his lies. We think to ourselves, well, did God really say, I can be my own Lord and God and there won't be any consequences? It is just not true. So if that's you this morning, we invite you to now believe. Believe and receive the gift of Christ himself in your heart. Believe and receive what the Bible says can free you from your slavery to sin. Pray with me now. These words are simply a guide. May it be the very desire of your heart. Heavenly Father, I am weary of the father of lies. I'm tired. I'm tired of wearing this fig leaf. I'm tired of relying on my own strength. Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me of my sin. Please free me, God. Give me a desire for your truth in your word. And grant me your spirit so I could follow your son. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.